Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 2? I will be reading verses 1 to 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The reading of God's word. I want to thank so many of you for uh, your support this last week. It was perhaps harder than it should have been to preach that passage, and it was a, a Great opportunity for many of you to encourage me. I appreciate it very much. We're moving into chapter 2 this morning. And it comes to a passage which we sometimes wonder how it works with the idea of the grace alone gospel, a free gift of God by faith, not by works, when it commands us that we must keep such works that we must grow in righteousness and must obey. I wondered at first, how is this the gospel? And then I remembered at my conversion, I had already been attending church since I was born, and I was in my 20s. I remember that it was verses such as these this morning that made me realize that I was not a Christian and caused me, through the leading of God's Spirit, to cry out to God and say, hey, I can't do this. This isn't me. I cannot accomplish what you have called me to. And at that moment of recognizing my absolute failure, my total inability to keep the commands of God, is when he graciously saved me. And so I confidently preach to you this morning what Paul preached, even though it's uncomfortable. It was commonly accepted Jewish thought that the Gentiles or the non-Jewish peoples were sinners under God's wrath. That was readily apparent to the Jewish religious audience. They, these Gentiles did not possess or even try to live by the law of Moses, and they did not have a covenant relationship with God. And so it is Paul's purpose in the first three chapters of Romans to show that the Jews who possessed the law and enjoyed covenant relationship with God are not saved by these advantages. They are placed 
in the exact same footing and in the same status as the Gentiles in relation to God. Outside of Christ, under wrath. In Christ, the very people of God. And so in our previous passage, chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, Paul brings an accusation against the Gentiles who have been guilty of horrible behaviors that stemmed from an outright rejection of God. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And verse 24 and 25, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But Paul has structured the argument so that it has an element of surprise. He outlines the shocking depravity of the Gentiles so that while the Jews are still nodding and saying amen, he shockingly indicts them as well. In this, he imitates the prophet Amos, who recounts the sins of the Gentile nations around Israel, and even as they're nodding and saying, yeah, yeah, those guys are so bad, he then turns and rebukes Israel and Judah for the very same heart attitude. It's the same way the prophet Nathan comes to David, and he tells him of the great sin of a certain man, and even as David condemns that man, Nathan says, that man, O king, is you. And so our passage this morning is a diatribe against those who believe that God will be lenient despite their continued disobedience, and against those who believe that their obedience is sufficient to be counted righteous before God. I want to say that again. Two types of people that this comes against. Those who believe that God will be lenient despite their continued disobedience, and against those that believe that their obedience is sufficient to be counted righteous. Both are called to repentance here. Otherwise, God will not spare them from judgment. This is a shocking message to those who believe that they belong to the people of God by virtue of their birth or by a covenant ritual. Those who continue to walk in disobedience cannot shield themselves from God's wrath by appealing to His grace. God judges all people according to what they have done. And all people rightly fall under this judgment, Romans 3.23, because all have sinned. And so after pointing out the sins of the pagans to set them up, Paul now springs the rhetorical trap, Romans 2, 1 to 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It is so easy for us, church, to see sin in others and overlook it in our own lives. 
It's easy to look at the world and, and shame, shame, and not recognize that the sanitized sins of our heart have the same idolatrous root. To have the highest standards for others, but then to cut ourselves a lot of slack. We look down on others where they are weak and we are strong. Even worse, we count on the grace of God for our own sin, but then turn to condemn others in theirs. We must pray as the psalmist did, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And so the argument here follows chapter 1, 18 to 32, God's wrath is revealed against all those who suppress the truth of God, fail to honor Him as God, and give Him thanks. And then here in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you are without excuse when you judge others, verse 1, because you practice the very things you condemn in others. One might think that judgment was impending because they were judging one another, but judging itself isn't condemned here. Paul expects the Jews to agree that the Gentiles who engage in wicked behavior deserve God's wrath. Paul believes this, and he expects the Jews to agree with him that they are rightly deserving the wrath of God. And we should observe that Paul is not condemning himself for judging their deeds. So Paul is calling out their sin, and it's not as though Paul is now guilty himself for calling out the sins of the Jews and Gentiles and concluding that they will face God's judgment. It doesn't make Paul guilty because he is judging the church here. No, they condemn themselves because they practice the same things even while they judge. They judge others without repenting themselves, thinking that they are on God's side and conclude that they are safe from judgment. But Paul's gospel is designed to undermine this very thinking. So, do these verses calling out wicked judges tell us never to confront sin? Elsewhere, Paul makes it abundantly clear that we are to confront sin in the church. In Galatians 6, 1-2, he tells us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so it is when we confront one another's sins that we are actually bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ, that is, the law of love. Knowing sin in other Christians and refusing to confront it is unloving. The problem, then, is not with confronting sin, the problem is with passing judgment on those who stumble in sin or are ensnared by sin. And this problem is compounded when we do so without first examining our own lives. If we pass judgment on others for sin that we ourselves are practicing, there is no chance that we will escape God's righteous judgment. 
Matthew 7, 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, it is our, our tendency to respond to this passage by saying, I guess I should never try to help my brother or sister out with their sin, since I will always have specks in my own eye. But notice, Jesus and Paul do not encourage such an approach. Their expectation, God's expectation, is that we will deal with the sin in our own lives so that we will be equipped to help our brothers and sisters grow in holiness as well. It is one of the common one another commands of Scripture to confront one another with sin. And in doing so, we bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. We love one another when we confront one another. But when we pass judgment, while we sin ourselves, we only serve to condemn ourselves. The motive behind Christians confronting sin in Christians is not judgment, but rather restoration. It is an act of love commanded by Christ, Matthew 18. And in doing so, Galatians 6, 2, you fulfill the law of Christ. In condemning sin in the world, all while practicing the same sins ourselves, we serve as our own judges, rightly condemning ourselves. In saying that the Jews were practicing the very same things, it doesn't mean that the Jews were openly practicing same-sex sin and overt idolatry as the Gentiles were, but that all sin, listed exhaustively in verses 29 to 31 of chapter 1, stems from the same idolatrous root of failing to honor God as God and give Him thanks. And so while they were pointing their finger at others who had external sins, who had obvious sins, they were in fact condemning themselves who had the same idolatrous root, creating all sorts of havoc inside. As Jesus said of the Pharisees, they were whitewashed tombs, cleaned up on the outside, and the inside full of rotten filth. And so the the correct moral judgment that the Jews had leveled against the Gentiles turn out, ironically, to be indictments against themselves. They are self-deceived because even though they practiced the same evil, they believed that their covenant relationship with God would protect them from His wrath and judgment. So understand this. Many of the Jews at this time felt free to condemn sinful Gentiles because they are not God's people, and then they would sin themselves whenever the temptation arose because they believed that they would not be held accountable for their own sin. Does this sound familiar yet? How many professing Christians today are quick to complain or pass judgment on this sinful world, and yet they have persisting sins in their own lives, and they gloss over them because they reason that God sees them as righteous in Christ? Right? Doesn't doesn't God just, when He looks at me, doesn't He just see Christ? That's why in in the letter to the churches that Jesus dictates in Revelation, he says, I see your works, I know your works, and confronts them on it. Doesn't God just see Jesus when he looks at me? Now, when someone says that, they mean it probably in a good way, in the sense that we cannot have a righteousness of our own. 
But God can only judge us righteous in Christ, in which we are declared righteous. But it doesn't mean that God does not judge us for our own activity, as we will see many times in many places of Scripture this morning. The, these people live in sin, and then quote Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgetting that Romans 8.2 continues, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. To people who believe that God just sees them righteous no matter what they do, verses 3 to 5 will come as a horrifying shock. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Not only are people self-deceived and blind to their own actions, they also show disdain for the kindness and patience of God because in His mercy, He has not brought immediate judgment upon them. And so because immediate judgment hasn't come, they're like, okay, well, I guess we can keep doing this. We're safe. God has shown the world kindness, forbearance, and patience but if opponents to Paul's gospel thinks that this means they will escape judgment, they are deeply mistaken. God's long-suffering forbearance towards sinners is to provide an opportunity for and to lead them towards repentance. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we know that God is kind and patient towards sinners, but what Paul is tackling here is the presumption on the part of those who think that, for some reason or another, they will be judged more leniently than others. For this... Uh, for, for this, the apostle thinks of this as, as not only presumptuous, but it actually shows contempt for God's kindness, to take it for granted. God's mercy gives space for repentance, but it is also a mercy that brings about righteousness rather than simply blessing sinners in their sin. They have failed to repent, verse 5, because they have a hard and impenitent heart. The Jews believed that they were God's elect people, protected from God's judgment by virtue of their covenant privilege. They would often point to the temple in their midst or, or point to the law that they held in their hands, and they would say, God, God couldn't bring judgment against us. We're the people of God. And they thought that even if they disobeyed the law of God in many ways, their outward obedience was sufficient enough to obtain a final reward. But instead of storing up for themselves an eternal reward, they were storing up for themselves the wrath of God. And Paul uses this verb to store up in an unusual way in Scripture. For almost everywhere else in the New Testament and in most other Jewish writings, it is used for storing up heavenly treasure and eternal rewards through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving to the poor. And these were all things that the Jews did very publicly. 
And so Paul shockingly uses this very same term to tell them that, in fact, they were actually storing up wrath, wrath like God was revealing against the Gentile world. So just as the Jewish people often lived with a false sense of security and believed that only rewards awaited them from God, so today many professing Christians think they are God's elect, believing the only question awaiting them at the final judgment is how big a crown they were going to get. We must examine ourselves. We must examine our lives to see if we are truly in the faith. Are we truly in Christ? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. This is Scripture. This is God speaking to us this morning, church. I'm going to read from several places in Scripture that are going to give us essentially the same command. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless... Indeed, you failed to meet the test. Jesus points out in Luke 3 that not all who consider themselves God's elect and covenant people can expect a positive judgment from God. Luke 3, 8 and 9, Jesus says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This fruit of repentance is readily apparent in those who really are the children of God, as is made clear through many times throughout the New Testament. I want to take the time to read a couple of longer passages to spell this out. Uh, first, from Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians 5, 17 to 24. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We can know, church, whether we belong to Christ Jesus when we walk according to the Spirit and are crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. The fruit of the Spirit is evident as are the works of the flesh. Jesus said, John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But that, John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freed from sin and from the works of the flesh. 
Peter gives the exact same litmus test as Paul in order to rightly assess our calling and election, 2 Peter 1, 3-11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See the connection here? In this way, through growing in these fruits, through if these things are yours and increasing, in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Paul says much the same thing in the next section, Romans 2, 6 to 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. I want to come back to this passage in a minute, but it's not as though Paul is questioning salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. That is his mantra. Paul is the one bringing the gospel of grace alone. But remember, Paul's grace alone gospel has come under criticism and has been accused of giving approval to sin. And so he is eager to show that this grace alone gospel produces a faith that does not remain alone. Paul is actually, later will develop this even further to say that nobody becomes righteous except those who become righteous through faith in the grace alone gospel. But he's not talking about some airy-fairy righteousness. He's not just talking about the declared righteousness of God, but an integrated righteousness, a righteousness that even though we only have it in Christ, it's not a righteousness of our own. It is a righteousness that is revealed. It is a righteousness that is seen and tested. And believers are told again and again, how do you know whether you are in the faith? Are these fruits yours and increasing? Or are you walking after the pattern of the flesh? We can easily ascertain which road we walk. Faith in the gospel of God, saving faith, is transformative as well. And only by this faith, as Paul will later argue, will people be made truly righteous in Christ before God. So reading again Romans 2, 6, he will render to each one according to his works. 
To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Paul emphasizes judgment according to works to remind Jews that merely being a Jew doesn't spare one from God's wrath. God is impartial, and therefore he judges Jews and Gentiles by the same standard. God does not grant his rewards to the Jews merely because of their Jewish heritage, but judges on an impartial basis. Therefore, it is the one who repents and patiently does what is right who will receive the reward of eternal life. Whereas the one who does not repent, verse 5, but continues to do what is evil will face God's wrath. This is because God repays each person according to his or her works. And here Paul is alluding to Proverbs 24, 12 and Psalm 62, 12. When Paul speaks of good works, he does not mean observance of the Old Testament law so as to merit salvation. It's not as though people are earning their salvation by good works. He adamantly stands against the idea of anyone deserving salvation by personal righteousness. But good works for Paul is the behavior expected of followers of Christ who have already been saved by faith alone. And people, people mess this up all the time in their thinking, in, in preaching, in teaching. Good works cannot earn salvation, but good works are the symptom of salvation. They are the expected behavior of followers of Christ who are saved by faith alone. Only those who have been declared righteous in Christ will be enabled for such persistence obedience to God. Godly living is necessary. Even though no one can be justified by works of the law and salvation does not come as a result of good works, uh, remember the passage that we are memorizing in order to bring context to it. Will you say it together with me as it comes on the screen? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's argument is that his gospel will not put us to shame, but that it will produce the obedience of faith, that is, sanctification. Paul's gospel moves from the present justification of faith alone, in which the sinner is immediately, by God, declared righteous, and he moves from that uh, present justification by faith alone to future justification by the obedience of faith. 
And so in Romans, justification is not always used to refer to that initial salvation where God declares us righteous, but is also used to refer to that final justification where God will be shown to be right because those He declared righteous in the beginning are now walking in righteousness in the end. In this, we become the very righteousness of God. We become His evidence that He was right to declare us right, as in Christ we walk in a right manner. It's complicated. We'll get there later in Romans. Obedience itself is the product of faith, so that no one can boast in their own righteousness. But it is a necessary symptom of faith, which we are, church, to strive for. For those who do not walk in obedience, but who are self-seeking, verse 8, there will be only wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, I'm going to just read the setup in verse 6. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You see here from this that the gospel is not only a word to be heard and believed, but it is one which is obeyed when it is truly believed. Verse Romans 2.9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. See how here Paul twice echoes the exact phrase from his earlier thesis statement, which we're memorizing. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now Paul exactly quotes this twice. Yes, the Jews have been the first to have the gospel come to them, and they were the first in which the salvation was produced. But there will be no special considerations for the Jewish people when it comes to judgment. In fact, they have the distinct privilege of being first in line, both when it comes to salvation and when it comes to judgment. Remember, Paul's agenda is to bring the disparate Gentile and Jewish groups of believers into the unity of one church, one body. There are not two peoples of God. And and this is actually a, a huge problem that there's a disunity between the ethnicities in Rome, a big reason why Paul has written this letter. He, he says it much more succinctly in Ephesians as, as he usually does. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, a little longer passage again, but it gives us the whole picture of what's being said here. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... 
in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's a long passage, but essentially what Paul is saying here and in Romans is that there cannot be two peoples of God. We cannot have a church divided where some keep the law and others don't. We can't have a church divided where some look down their nose at the others and say, oh, you should be living as we do, and, and them saying, oh, you live in such weird ways. They have to be brought together in unity. There is one church. And living under the law was one of the chief factors, if not the factor, that distinguished Jews from Gentiles. And now, Ephesians 2.15, God has removed this distinction by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, according to Paul's gospel, a gospel will not, that will not put us to shame, Jew and Gentile alike are welcomed in Christ as fellow citizens with the saints, adopted members of the household of God. But as children of God, we must recognize that our Heavenly Father does not play favorites, but judges each one according to their deeds. 1 Peter 1, 14-19 as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile." knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Christians do not get a pass on sinful behavior. This is why we should conduct ourselves with fear. Not everyone will hear the judgment, well done, good and faithful servant. Once charged with promoting a gospel that promotes sin, Paul now makes it clear that the gospel of sheer grace is not gospel light. He makes it clear that living a godly life is not optional and thus continues to drive home the obedience of faith theme that is woven throughout the Roman letter. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 will end with, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for the free gift, the grace of salvation by faith alone, which comes from you alone so that no one can boast. But even in the book that hammers this home the most, the book that says that it is all according to the sovereignty of God and not even according to human choice by which we are saved, a book that hammers home this grace alone gospel, in this letter we are also told that this faith will produce works. And God, while we tremble at that, while that causes great fear, may we also heed your word and celebrate that the gospel is better news than we ever dared believe. Because the gospel is not only a get-out-of-hell-free card, but the gospel is a promise that we will walk in righteousness. God, I look back at my life and all of the mistakes I've made and some of them, I think about them at night and they make me break out in a sweat at how stupid I was. And what a, a great gift, what a great hope we have that we will someday walk in such a way that we do not need to be ashamed of any of the things of our life. What a great hope, a good news greater than we ever believed, that you would make us righteous. You wouldn't just call us righteous and pretend, but that you would call us righteous and then you would fulfill what you have declared. And so, Lord, we can come under this, and, and your word is a scourge to those who are self-righteous but it is also a salve to those who already know their sin. And so, Lord, I pray that you would apply this this morning to us according to our need. To those who think that by their own obedience they have done enough, or those who believe that they can just sin and you won't worry about it, Lord, may this word be a scourge to us. Afflict us with conviction and bring us to repentance, I pray. And for those of us who are, are well aware of our utter failure and our desperate need for salvation, may we rejoice in this passage, knowing that you are faithful to, be, to complete what you have started, knowing that you don't just start something and then kick it aside when you get bored, but that when you have saved, you save to the full. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so, Lord, we thank you for this promise of freedom from slavery to sin. And I pray that your Spirit would lead us to walk in it according to your will and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.